turn to the book of Philippians. This is the last time we'll be doing so. We began our study here in early February, and now we are into mid-May and finishing out this study. Thank you so much for being with us through most or all of it. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. Before I do that, we do want to continue to remember, as I see Mike, uh, Jason Clayton, as many of you all know, you've been able to keep up hopefully through Facebook uh, that he had his uh, surgery, kidney transplant, that went well. It went well for Megan, too. So we want to continue to pray for both of them and their recovery, especially for Jason, because as you know, when you receive an organ, um, your body, ha you have to have medicines to help that body receive it. And so continue to keep him in prayer. As you have turned to Philippians chapter 4, I want to open uh, by sharing this. Charles Swindoll who's a pastor, uh, former president, and uh, also current chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary. And maybe you've heard him on the radio, Insight for Living, for a number of years was his radio program. He's written over 70 books. Charles Swindoll, interestingly, was mentored by J. Dwight Pentecost, an alumnus of Hampton-Sydney College, who served at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, himself uh, well into his mid to late 90s and passed away recently. But for Charles Swindoll, who is 86 and still serving the Lord, uh, one of his greatest attributes is his sense of humor. Even in his older years, he's continued to keep his sense of humor. I read some funny things that he wrote about money in his book that was titled The Tale of the Tardy Ox Cart. And I want to share just a few of those with you. Uh, four, actually, that are amusing to me. He tells the story, and again, this was over 20 years ago, of a sign that was noted in a Fort Lauderdale restaurant, and the sign discouraged people from cashing checks there. A lot of people in that season of our nation's life tried to cash checks, and so to discourage people from doing so, the sign outside of the restaurant said, if you are 80 years old and are accompanied by both parents, we will cash your check. I also laughed at this. There was another sign about money that was carried by employees who are on strike, and the sign said this, time heals all wounds, but time and a half heals them a lot faster. Then there was the statement by uh, the golfer, who also himself was a comedian. If you like golf, you understand that, Lee Trevino. He had a, a great personality. Uh, but Lee said, we were so poor growing up that when mom tossed a dog a bone, he had to call a fair catch unless we grabbed it before he did. And then there was this thought-provoking saying, do your giving while you're living, then you're knowing where it's going. You know, we're amused by these sayings about money, but money is a very serious matter. And I would confess to you in my own life, and you probably would say the same, that often money or especially the lack thereof, 
can be a stressful thing. We worry that we're going to run out of money before we run out of month. There are times, to be honest, when, when our sense of peace actually is determined by our checking account. And it shouldn't be that way. I want to look today at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 and following, as we look at this subject of money, possessions, contentment, and having a giving heart and giving an action. And in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I do not say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send your greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a close in this study of Philippians, Lord, help us to have generous hearts, contented hearts, in whatever situation we find ourselves. Father, we thank you for the example both of Paul and the church at Philippi. And so, Lord, we pray your guidance in the study of your word today. May your Holy Spirit quicken these words in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we close this epistle, which, by the way, uh, was written from Rome because in the final greetings here, he, he recognizes the greetings that are sent to the church at Philippi from Caesar's household. As I was reading that, I thought, you know, how impressive that Paul, who found himself in prison, had a great impact even in the household of the greatest person uh, politically in that particular day. But as we close this epistle in our study today, I want to remind you of some of the things we've looked at over the past three months. Uh, we looked at the fact that for us as Christians to live is Christ. He is to be our life. He is to be the center of our life. And Paul says, if that be the case, then to die is gain. If you remember when we studied chapter 2, as we looked in chapter 2, we understood then that we are to think of others more highly than we think of ourselves. We saw that in verse 4 of chapter 2. And he gave us, Jesus, the great Christological passage that, that portrays Christ as our servant who emptied himself 
and came in the form of a servant, died, arose again, and who himself will be exalted at the right hand of the Father. In, in chapter 3, we looked at the truth that salvation is through faith in Christ alone, and we were warned to beware of those who would teach otherwise, who would seek to try to emphasize a work salvation. No, that's not true. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And then last week, we looked at some of the qualities that we as Christians are to put on, these qualities that are befitting a follower of Jesus Christ. We're to put on mercy and joy, graciousness, peace, and moral goodness. Today, at the close of our study in Philippians, we come to the subject of money, a subject often that can be uncomfortable, a subject that we need to understand from a biblical view. We're going to observe this morning Paul and the church at Philippi. We're going to see their attitude toward possessions, and we're going to note four truths related to the Christian and his or her possessions. Each of these will draw from the text from which I just read. But before we look at the four truths, I want to ask this question. What should be a Christian's attitude toward possessions? I want to note two things that are very important in our understanding of money. First, money is necessary to exist in society. It, it, it's essential. We, we need that. It's in and of itself morally neutral. It is not bad to have money, and it's not bad to not have money. The Bible doesn't say, and many people misquote, that money is a root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money in 1 Timothy 6.10 is a root of all evil. So it is okay to have money. But while it is okay to have money, even much money, it is not okay for money to have us. And that's the issue that many people deal with. As we look at this chapter, the second truth we need to understand, not only is, is money really a neutral thing and our attitude toward it de determines um, uh, God's approval or disapproval, but the second thing is this. It is essential that we as Christians know that we are stewards or managers of our possessions. Everything we have, not just the tithe, everything we have is from God. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, Moses writes there that uh, the reason that we have the strength even to acquire possessions, that itself is a gift from God. So with this in mind, I want to look at what our text this morning teaches us about money and possessions. And the first thing is this. We are to know that possessions do not bring real contentment. Possessions don't. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes our emotions are elevated when we have a lot or we have that special possession, and then we are deflated or depressed when we're struggling. But it's not to be that way because money was not created to, to have control of our emotions. You know, as a child, I and my two siblings in my sister's room had toy boxes that were built into 
of that portion of the house. Each toy box we had, and they were side by side. I was the middle child, so mine was the middle. Now, I'm a little frustrated because the vent uh, that, that put the air condition and the heat into that room came up through my toy box, so I had not as much space. But all of us had a section that was about four feet long, about uh, two feet uh, wide, and three feet in depth. You would know our priorities based on which toys were at the top. If a toy was at the top, that meant it was high priority, but there was one truth, and, and I'll attest to it. No toy ever stayed at the top because Christmas would come and birthday would come and there would be something more new, something more shiny, something more impressive, and then that former impressive toy would make itself to the bottom of the box. It's a great lesson I should have learned as a child understanding this, and it is this. Possessions are a temporary thing. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ should be familiar with Psalm chapter 49. If you're not, I would encourage you sometime today, write down Psalm 49 and go home and read over it. It's, it. It will only take about a minute or two, but it gives us the proper perspective of possessions. In fact, I believe it's the very last verse that says this, those who have possessions without understanding, in other words, not understanding that they come from God, that they're a gift from God, he says, like the animals that perish, it says their possessions will descend with them. Paul understood, and by, by the way, the church at Philippi understood the truth that God owned all and does own all. Paul knew what it was, he says here, to have and to not have. In verses 11 and verse 12, he sort of repeats the thought. He said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances, whether well-fed or hungry. We say, well, boy, I can be content if I'm well fed, but we really don't understand many people's attitudes toward money and this sinful nature that we have because sometimes the more we have, the less we can be content. In fact, we can look at, at uh, the television and see how many people who have much fame and many possessions are really not content. Paul understood what it was to have a lot and to have not much at all, and he says, I've learned to be content. And what he's saying when he says, I've learned, he says, I've entered into a new state of awareness. Now, we know Paul accepted Christ on the road to Damascus. And while his salvation was at that point in time, he went from being dead in his sins to alive to Christ. I tend to think probably this grasping of possessions came sometime later. As he began to love the Lord more and more with his heart, he realized that money and possessions could compete with that love. And so he said that he had learned to be content. The word content is really a, a word, a Greek word borrowed from Stoic philosophy, and it means to be satisfied, thus unmoved by external circumstances. I like how R.C.H. Linsky, the New Testament commentator, says, he says, contentment was Paul's wealth. Not wealth, but contentment was Paul's wealth. Well, how could Paul maintain such an attitude? Verse 13, 
is a verse that so many of us are familiar. For some of us, it's our favorite verse. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul understood that his life was Christ and that Christ would sustain him through good times and through bad times. And, and get this, his focus was not on his possessions, but his possessor, the one who possessed him. And so in the midst of uh, this text that deals with his contentment, that deals with the church that's ready to give, he focuses on the Lord. He lived not for himself or his conveniences, but he lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to see a second truth with me. We're to hold our possessions loosely. The church at Philippi was a giving church. It is an example both to us as a church and to us as individuals. And not only were they active in their giving because he said, when Paul earlier, years earlier, had left Macedonia, they were the only one ready and able and, and giving to Paul's need at that time. So not only were they a giving church, but they had a heart to give. Notice what he says in verse 10. In the middle of the verse, he said, You renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. Now, there may have been two reasons earlier than Paul's writing here that the church at Philippi lacked the opportunity. It may have been that they at that time did not have a courier. They did not have what we see in verse 18 in Epaphroditus, somebody to get that money to Paul. But I tend to think the reason they lacked opportunity at this specific time was at that particular time that they were ready, Paul really did not have that need. They, they had the willingness to give, but Paul's attitude was, I'm thankful, but at this particular moment, my needs are met. They, the church at Philippi would remind me sort of uh, like Abraham with Isaac when he was ready to sacrifice his son, had a heart to give in obedience to what God required of him, but then God in the last moment provided the ram caught in the thicket, and he did not have to offer his own son. Or maybe as we see in the building of the tabernacle, you remember when the treasures and the money began to come in and in, and finally they said, to the people, stop, we have sufficient need. But we see here a great example in the church at Philippi, even though they didn't have opportunity, even though at that moment that they intended to give earlier was not needed, they had a heart to give. And not only that, but we see much earlier, as I just mentioned a moment ago in verses 15 and 16, when Paul left Macedonia, Philippi was the church that was ready to give. In fact, Thessalonica, most uh, P historians say, was much more affluent as a city than Philippi, yet Philippi was the church that was most ready to give. You know, there are a number of adjectives that we can use to describe a church, or for that matter, a person. We can describe them as solid, sound, welcoming, Bible-believing. But one of the best things that can be said of a church and an individual is that it is giving. He is giving. She is giving. Philippi gave, we see in verse 18, when the opportunity did arise through Epaphroditus. We're going to study uh, how Paul describes that here in just a moment and, and how our giving actually, in effect, truly is. But before we move to that and before we move to the point before that, 
I think there's something that's very important for us to note about the church at Philippi and its giving, and it was this. Their giving went beyond their walls. In the local church, many times uh, there's a great desire. Let's keep our ministries going. Let's keep the lights on. Let's keep the facilities looking good. Let's keep the preacher paid. That's not bad. I'm not saying that. But I want you to see here that the church here had a heart to give beyond its walls. They sent the gift from Philippi to Paul, and they sent that gift through Epaphroditus. A thriving church is not just growing in numbers within its walls. A thriving church is a church that has a heart for missions. Psalm 96.3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all peoples. Philippi held its possessions loosely. It was a giving church. But I want you to see a third truth that Paul brings out here. There is a blessing in the act of giving. I could have many people in our church stand up and give testimony to this truth. It is a great thing to be able to give to the Lord, to be able to give to something that will stand for eternity. You know, my favorite Christmas movie, and Whitney knows this, is It's a Wonderful Life. And very interesting, although the movie was produced and and put out in 1946, I never saw the movie until I was a seminary student. Karen and I were at a party that some of our friends had at the seminary. I think it may have been a Bible study group or whatever, or a group of friends, and I saw It's a Wonderful Life. And I wasn't that big into black and white movies, but then I was sort of mesmerized. So every year, I, I want to see that movie. But in the movie, there's a stark contrast between two of the main characters, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, and a Mr. Potter, I don't know if they ever gave his first name, played by Lionel Barrymore. And if you've seen the movie, you understand that due to a mistake uh, by George Bailey's uncle, George uh, believed that he lost everything that he had, and he was devastated to the point of wanting to take his own life. But at the end of that movie, true to form, he realized that giving, having a heart for giving, always brings a great return. Maybe you remember how in that last scene, the town, realizing everything George had been through, gathered at his house and began to bring money. And they said, you help me in my time of need. You help me physically here, materially here. And they began to drop the money, and he had more than enough money to keep his business afloat. One of the final statements of the movie was offered by George's younger brother, who was the recipient of his life being saved by George's selfless act, and he said this at a toast. He said to George Bailey, the richest man in town. You know, there are a number of ways to be rich. You can be rich in mercy and rich in generosity. George Bailey may have had fewer possessions than Mr. Potter, even at the end of that movie, but he was more than rich. At this time in Paul's life in ministry, he didn't have as much financial need, maybe as at other times. 
But I want you to notice his attitude in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift. It's great to receive the gift was his attitude, but not that I seek it. But he says, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. In other words, he says, your giving is profitable. Now, that doesn't make human sense. And if you speak to an unbeliever, they'll say, you're crazy. How can you take money out of your account and have more affluence? But what he's saying here, there's a profit. Literally, the word there is fruit. Our giving is fruitful for us. There is a blessing in giving. There's a blessing in having an open hand. It is the blessing of participating in God's eternal work. It is the blessing of seeing your resources that God has blessed you with being used to bring glory to his name, of taking something that is temporal, our currency, and investing in things that are eternal. That's why Paul says in the book of Acts and repeating Jesus' words in Acts 20 and verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, don't tell a child that at Christmas. He or she won't understand it. But tell a mature Christian, and he or she will give testimony to the truth. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And guess what? God provides. Verse 19, and my God, Paul says, will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I want you to see a fourth truth. From God's word. Our giving is an act of worship to God. Notice what he says in verse 18. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm fully supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. A fragrant offering. An acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Paul uses Old Testament Levitical worship to depict their gift. And you understand under the old covenant when the sacrifices were offered, there were incense that would accompany. The thought was if the sacrifice was approved by God, it would be a pleasing aroma. Literally here, a fragrant offering means a fragrance of sweet smell. Such an offering was acceptable to God. What, What Paul is telling the church at Philippi, you had a heart to give, and when you had an opportunity to give, Coming from that pure motive of your heart, it was pleasing to God. When we give financially, we don't just give to keep the church's financial needs above water. We don't just give to provide for missionaries, which both are true. But when we give, it's an act of worship to God. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your own harvest. In giving... Not only are we meeting the needs of people, but we're honoring the Lord. I've pastored for 30 years, been in ministry, including part-time youth ministry. Uh, Prior to my time here for 33 years, I have never heard someone say, I wish I hadn't given so much money to the Lord. Now, I realize I'm a preacher. I'm probably not going to hear that. (laughs) But there's something in us that would keep us from saying that. And that's something in us is faith. The faith that when we give to the Lord, it is pleasing to God. I've, I've been with a number of people by their bedside when they have died. Uh, some of them have not been alert. 
some of them have. I've never heard anyone say he or she regretted the things that that one did for the Lord. There is a blessing in giving. It's important to learn contentment. There is a a blessing in grasping the truth that true contentment comes from our relationship with the Lord, not from possessions. We're made to give and to find fulfillment in the attitude and the act of giving. So I close with these questions. How's my attitude toward possessions? Do I realize that what I have is a gift from God, a stewardship that has been bestowed upon me? Am I generous and am I a contented person? This closes our study in Philippians today. And I I pray that you would understand the greatest gift that was ever given was described in chapter 2 when Jesus emptied himself, not of deity, but of the use of the divine attributes, humbling himself, coming to this earth to die for our sins. The greatest example of giving is our Lord himself. He understood, he understood the purpose of life in everything that we have, even our very own lives, is to give glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this study in Philippians. Lord, help us to possess the attitude of a Paul who learned to be content whatever his external circumstances were. Lord, help us to follow the example as a church that the church of Philippi sets as attested to by Paul here in Philippians 4. Having a heart to give, always ready for the opportunity in following through in giving. Father, we thank you that you have given us the life that we have. We thank you for the possessions that we have. Lord, some of us, we have been in third world countries on mission, and we understand how blessed we are. Even the poorest of poor in in our community is better off than in many places of the world. Lord, may we have hearts of gratitude. Lord, may we be giving people. Father, I love you and lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to our close today, maybe God has spoken to you.